With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 494th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a terrific stage and screen actor and singer. He's best known for his work on the stage. Over the last 30 years, he's appeared in 15 Broadway productions, garnering Tony nominations in three different decades, specifically Best Featured Actor in a Musical in 2002 for Sweet Smell of Success, and Best Actor in a Musical in 2009 for Shrek the Musical, in 2015 for Something Rotten, and this year for a revival of Into the Woods, for which he has already shared in a Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album. And he was also the original King George III in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton when it was playing off-Broadway at The Public. He's been a part of major films and TV series as well. On the small screen, he starred on NBC's Smash from 2012 through 2013 and Netflix's 13 Reasons Why from 2017 through 2018. On the big screen, meanwhile, he starred in two Best Picture Oscar-nominated films, Tom McCarthy's Spotlight in 2015 and Steven Spielberg's West Side Story in 2021, the former of which won and also brought him a SAG Award as part of its ensemble. This year, he was nominated for a Best Supporting Performance Spirit Award for his work in Ricky D'Ambrose's The Cathedral, and is currently starring opposite Tony winner Kelly O'Hara in the off-Broadway musical Days of Wine and Roses. Brian Darcy James. Over the course of our conversation, the 54-year-old and I discussed a number of the people who shaped his desire to pursue acting, some of the tough professional decisions that he's faced along the way, like leaving Next to Normal and Hamilton after originating roles in them off-Broadway when they moved to Broadway in order to star in Shrek the Musical and Something Rotten, respectively, how he landed the part in Spotlight and how it subsequently led to a whole different caliber of screen acting opportunities than he'd ever seen before, what it's been like over the past year coming out of the pandemic and returning to the stage on Broadway in Into the Woods and off-Broadway in Days of Wine and Roses, Plus, much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Brian, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great thank to you, see Scott. you. It's really nice to be here. So we always go back to the very beginning. Can you share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I grew up in Saginaw, Michigan, which is uh, right in the middle of the state. 
if uh, you know, as any true Michigander, you know, since we're on a podcast now, I am showing you my hand, yes. and I'm showing you where Saginaw is yes. on my hand, which is right in the center. It was a GM town, right? It was. It was. Yeah. It was. Um, we were uh, the steering gear division was the uh, was the kind of mainstay of uh, of the GM life there, and uh, so yeah, the Saginaw Gears was an IHL hockey team there. So there was a there was a lot of an, an identity around that, and mm. um, a lot of work around that as well. So yeah, so in the seventies and the eighties, that was um, you know that was high times for GM. Um, it's a different story now. Saginaw's changed quite a bit, um, but um, that's where I grew up. My father was a lawyer. Mm. He was a trial lawyer, and uh, he would represent, you know, the likes of General Motors, and um, uh, he was a, a great guy. He died when I was uh, 22, right, just coming out of college. Thanks, yeah. He was a, a, an amazing man and um, super supportive and intrigued by what I was starting to yeah. do at that point in my life. Uh, my mother, Mary, my dad's name is Tom. Mm -hmm. my, my mom's name is Mary James, and she's, uh, she still lives in Saginaw. And um, she is a uh, an, an exceptional person yeah. as well. And uh, um, she sold children's books for a long time. Had her own company. She was uh, she got a degree in library science. So she um, loves books and reading, and has passed that down to all her grandchildren. And um, she, uh, among many other things, I mean, she's she's an, an incredible person. Now, your namesake, I believe, played a pretty big role in shaping your, your direction in life. Can you tell us who he was? Sure. Brian Kelly. Um, Brian Kelly, uh, is my uncle, my mom's brother. And, uh, for, for people who don't know, Brian Kelly was an actor in the sixties and the seventies. And he was probably most well known for playing the father figure in Flipper, mm -hmm. Porter Rick. And, uh, um, so I grew up kind of knowing that my uncle was on TV and, and seeing those, those episodes of Flipper in prime time at that time, yeah. like every Friday night. And, um, and then, uh, he went on to producing as well. He produced, uh, he was the executive producer of Blade Runner, which is a, a really cool feather in his cap. And that uh, wasn't a coincidence, right? That he made a, a shift from being in front of to behind the camera. Right? No, he had quite a, quite a uh, momentous experience in his life. He was in a motorcycle accident that uh, really severely um, affected him physically. He was paralyzed on the right side of his body and um, essentially ruined his acting career. Um, but he was tenacious and uh, just was just always wanting to, you know, be involved and tell stories. And so, um, I mean, that's a fascinating story with him getting the rights to, from Philip K. Dick, getting yes. the rights to that, that story and, and developing it into a, um, a show, um, a movie with Hampton Fancher, who was ultimately the screenwriter, but Hampton and, uh, my uncle Brian were, were good buddies back in the day. And, I had the great pleasure of meeting Hampton Fancher um, a few years back, and, and he had some great stories to tell me about his friendship with wow. my uncle and kind of fleshing out how all of that came to be. I mean, that's a whole, whole kind of sub-sub story in itself. Well, was your uncle, I mean, both before and after the accident, I guess I'd be curious to know, was he encouraging of, uh, I don't know if you even were thinking in terms of maybe this is something I want to do at that early of an age, but what was his position about getting into the business? Well, his main advice was never act with a fish. <laughs> that was something I remember him saying, and I think he meant it. You uh, haven't done it yet, right? I don't I, think. I, you know? I don't think so. <laughs> um, but no, uh, aside from that excellent advice, um, 
he was very encouraging. And once I started doing it and uh, getting involved in it professionally, he was um, he was definitely uh, there to support it. And I think he really was delighted about it. And um, I remember I did a show uh, in in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was a a one man show by Connor McPherson called The Good Thief. Yes. And uh, he came to that along with um, his twin brother, my uncle Harry. And um, anyway, he was a big supporter. And I and you know. I wish I could continue to have conversations with him about the industry and the business and his perspective on things. Um, but I'm lucky that I had that chance to be able to kind of exchange notes with him and run things by him and get his, um, his very unique perspective on totally. things. Totally. Well, so I guess if there are incremental steps in arriving at the decision that this is what you want to pursue with your life acting, uh, you know, he's the, it seems like the exposure that it's possible and then I've read that you have a sister who was sort of a model as well for that. Yeah, my sister Ann James Noonan. She is a teacher on the North Shore of Chicago at New Trier High School. And uh, she, in high school, she was always doing musicals. And um, I guess we were always musical you know, family growing up, my parents loved music. Um, you know, Stevie Wonder was always playing and not just because he was born in Sac- yes. Michigan, uh, no, but just that was the kind of, you know, the fifth dimension, you know, my mom always had records playing and my dad loved jazz. And so, you know, music was a big part of our lives. So my sister and I were always singing and she kind of took it to the next level in high school and started doing musical theater. And, uh, I would watch her and, and just kind of marvel at, um, you know, this this thing that she was doing, this world that she all of a sudden had been transported into that I was watching, I was fascinated by that and also just so admired it. And so when two years later, when I started doing you know high school theater with her, it was a it was a great it was a great thing because uh, you know it was kind of an immediate community. Yeah. Um, I was a little guy. I was in sports. I loved sports. I played all kinds of sports, but by that time, you know you know, four foot six people would not be advised to be playing football anymore. Um, at least that was my, (laughs) that was my conclusion. Um, and so theater was a way for me to kind of, um, have an identity and, and find this thing that I could maybe do and, um, give me a voice. And so, but yeah, my sister was hugely instrumental in that. So how was it treated? I think there's different high schools, different, where there's different, kinds of ways that theater is regarded like was was it cool to be a theater kid where you were it wasn't really cool but nor was it uh you know kind of uh, jeered at there wasn't any kind of um you know one way or the other i think once you were doing a show it was always appreciated and i think it was always kind of um like I was feeling about my, about my sister, I think that there was a sense of, amongst the students, you know, and this may be, hold true universally that, mm-hmm. y- you know, you see this this show that your 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 classmates are doing, and you just you kind of look at it with wonder and think, wow, what what? How do they do that? Like, wh- or why do they do that? And and it is such a thing unto itself that I always felt that at least it was appreciated, but it wasn't it wasn't you know. I know some schools have great theater programs and, and it's really, um, you know, the, the, there's an awareness of how great it is. And then, you know, sadly you hear stories about people being shunned because, you know, that's not cool right. to do. It was neither one or the other for me, but um, ultimately I always felt like it was something that was appreciated and needed. That's good. So uh, the decision to go to Northwestern, was that because of a 
certain program there, <clears throat> certain program there that appealed to you that would allow you to continue to do this? I mean, what was, as you went off to college, what was the kind of game plan to the extent that there was one? Right. It, I think that is a good kind of um, qualification. I didn't really have yeah. a plan. I had an idea and I knew that Northwestern had a great theater program. So when I applied there, I, my intention was to go to a school where I could get, you know, uh, just a, a degree in, in, um, general studies or whatever, and, and take advantage of the program kind of like you do in high school, you do your work and then try out for the play. Right. Uh, that was my hope. Um, and when miraculously I got in there, um, they, they, they made a caveat on my, uh, on my, um, introduction letter saying, we'll accept you, but we'll only accept you into the school of speech, which at that time was housed the theater program. So they were kind of, kind of putting me on a path, mm -hmm. uh, which I was happy with. Yeah. I still figured I could take the classes that I wanted to, but I was very surprised to learn on my, my first week there, that first pre week where you're kind of getting used to the, you know, just kind of the freshman orientation, mm -hmm. I guess you'd call it. Um, it was, a surprise to me to learn that I would have to choose a major that week. And so, That's <laughs> so <weird>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, they just wanted everyone in their lanes, I guess. And so, um, I was hanging out with some of the theater folks during, during that week. And, um, I just figured, well, I'll go over there with them and, and, uh, and just see what happens. And so it was kind of a, uh, I didn't make the decision so much as it was yeah, made for forced, me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've read about a few things that seem to have happened there that were pretty important. Um, beginning with, I guess, finding a mentor who helped cement the idea that this was, uh, that, that acting was for you or vice versa. Who is it? Bud Byer? Bud Byer was my yeah. acting teacher. Yeah. yeah. At Northwestern. So yeah, I learned how to act, uh, by virtue of being in his class and, um, just also the other, um, the faculty there that were always open and helpful and, um, you know, that's where I learned how to do what I do in terms of the tools, in terms of the craft, in terms of the mindset and just the work that you need to put in. So I credit Northwestern with that for sure as being um, the the means by which I was able to see it as more of a science than just kind of a, um, a hobby or um, uh, something that you just kind of do and hope is good. You, you have to learn how to do it. Um, another professor that was hugely instrumental is a man named Dominic Massimi, mm -hmm. who uh, was on staff there, uh, on faculty rather, and um, we did a production of Hair my sophomore year of college, which ultimately became a professional um, production of Hair, the 20th anniversary production of Hair in Chicago, produced by Michael Butler. Um, and Michael Butler, who lived in who lived, he recently passed away sadly. But he he lived in Oak Brook, Illinois. He saw the Northwestern production. And he said, "That's what I want, Kit and Caboodle." And so he hired Dominic. He hired the the uh, basically wanted to use the set design, and um, and Dominic gave all of the students a chance to audition for this professional production. And uh, luckily, I was I was cast in the same role I played in school. Yes. That got my my equity card. Yes, it's my first professional gig. Um, I left school to do it my junior year, which was a huge decision. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, really that really changed my life in the sense of understanding what it meant to be a professional actor. I remember very distinctly, um, 
learning about union rules and taking 10 minute breaks and thinking, wow, this is just so organized and so <laughs> civilized and um, really kind of understood the mentality of a workplace as an artist, which, yeah. which I thought was really fascinating. Um, anyway, that, that was a huge turning point for me. I think another legacy of that might be the fact that up until that point, weren't you, you're just Brian James. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. When I joined the union, I had to add my middle name because there was already a Brian, Brian James. James. Actually, there's a funny little story. Yeah. This is a side note, a Blade Runner a side note. Yeah. Um, there was an actor named Brian James, a great character actor, B-R-I-O-N, um, who strangely intersected with my uncle Brian Kelly. <laughs> but uh, I remember I was doing a production of Les Mis and I was on, I was on the road and I was in Los Angeles and somehow... Someone caught wind of the fact that Brian James was was in, in L.A. and I got this random phone call. Um, I was staying at the Oakwood apartment yeah, sure. at the time, and I don't know how I got this call. This is before cell phones. This is in like '93, <laughs> and uh, they were, they were saying, "Is this Brian James?" And I said, "Yes, it is." And they said, "Well, oh, we're such big fans." And I'm thinking, "How could you be a fan of me? I played Jolie <laughs> in Les Mis. I have one line. I'm like way in the back." Right. And they started saying, "Oh, we loved your work in Enemy Mine. We loved your work." And like, oh, <laughs> they could. <laughs> you you want the other Brian James? That's great. Yeah. So but so when I joined um, Equity, I had to add my middle name. At first, I thought I still get grief from my friends about this. I thought my middle initial would be fine, and I spell my middle my name Darcy with a small D. Yeah. And uh, so for a while there, I was Brian D James, little D. <laughs> And that they that, wouldn't do that. No, I, I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't because okay. like that just that's just ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, to this day, my my good friend Thomas calls me uh, Little D. Little so D. so uh, yeah. So I just I just instead of changing my name, I added my middle name, awesome. which I love, and that's my uncle's name as well. My other uncle, right. Darcy James. So it's nineteen ninety. You graduate. I think you're twenty two at that point. And then at this very moment, when you're kind of about to take your um, talents out into the world, this is when this terrible loss that you mentioned earlier of your father happened. And I just wonder, um, did that in any way make you hesitate about sticking on this path or had he, you, you sort of implied he had been encouraging of it? Yeah. Uh, no, it didn't, has, it didn't make me want to leave the path. It certainly, you know, um, as any huge thing like that does it, it, it just stops you in your tracks. Mm. So, but ultimately what it did, um, and I'm so grateful for this for whatever reason, um, whether it's the strength of my family and whatever kind of support I had leading up to it or any sense of myself at that time. Uh, but I was filled with a sense of carpe diem and, um, a sense of, well, if not now, when, and God knows there's no better example of, of life being um, just a you know, snap of the fingers. So um, it wasn't very long after that that I jumped in my Honda Civic and drove from Chicago to uh, and parked my, my car in Connecticut, my aunt and uncles, and, and took the train in and lived with my cousin and just said, in okay, city, this yeah. is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do this. And the fact that you were choosing to start your career in New York rather than L.A., did that, should we read into that, that you were always focused on theater first or rather than, you know, some people would say, all right, let me go out to LA and see if I can get any traction there. Yeah. Did you know that sort of theater would be the way in? Well, I didn't know, but I definitely felt it, there, the familiarity of it seemed like a natural thing for me. A lot of my classmates did go to Los Angeles and, uh, and had, had did extraordinarily well. I mean, 
you know, there are lots of examples of Northwestern students having great success. And that was also kind of part of the, um, you know, what, what you can see there helps because you can see people kind of getting a foothold in the industry and it kind of takes the mystique away. So that was always a great thing about, about, uh, the program there, but be that as it may, um, I always felt like the theater thing was the thing that I could do. It was, I was well-versed in, I mean, we all were, we're coming from theater Mm -hmm. class basically, but I just always felt like, well, it would make more sense for me to try to kind of ply my wares at, you know, uh, on the boards, you know, in, in New York, and that seemed to be the place to go. So that seemed to be the natural progression. And it seems just on paper that, you know, to be making your Broadway debut within two years of arriving in New York, it must have, um, you know, gone well pretty quickly. Uh, you're so exactly 30 years ago, uh, 1993, you're in Blood Brothers, your first show on Broadway. Do you remember that first uh performance does and just even how it what led up to it yeah well what led up to it was was the tonys were happening at the time and con o'neill who played the lead role of mickey uh was up for a tony and i was coming in to play one of the um the ensemble parts um and to understudy that role and i remember sitting at the place where i parked my honda civic in connecticut Mm -hmm. i was there because my mom was visiting her sister my aunt joanne i was in their house and i was watching the tony awards and I knew that the next day I had to start my rehearsals at the Music Box Theater to be a replacement in Blood Brothers. And I was watching this show and I was watching, I had a few friends in the show as well. And just kind of in amazement that, that, I, was, that I was going to be kind of inserted into that show that was, you know, um, and I'd watched the Tonys ever since I was in high school. And um, so that was kind of an interesting um, moment of a threshold of realizing, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be in that show. <laughs> and then, um, I do remember, I've told this story before, but I think it's interesting. Um, interesting to me, <laughs> your, no, your sure. listeners will, will yeah, say no. whether they'll fall asleep or not. But, uh, <laughs> um, I do remember when I was getting ready to go on to do my first entrance, which was a bit of a, like a tableau portrait where everyone comes out and, um, and then disappears. And then the story starts a little bit of a preamble. Um, I remember thinking, what is it going to feel like? What is, this is incredible. I mean, it was just so filled with such anticipation and excitement. And, and then I walk out on stage and I hit my spot and sang my part. And, um, I realized immediately it was the same thing that I'd been doing since, you know, I did Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in 10th grade, you know, in Saginaw, different place, different stakes, different amount of money to pay for the ticket. Um, but essentially the same job. So, uh, I was, uh, I remember feeling that way and feeling like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is gonna be all right. Yeah. <laughs> this is gonna it's be all right. how you think. I kind of know how to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so second show, I believe a year later, you're in Carousel. Yeah. And I guess probably the largest takeaway from that is a person rather than a, a thing, right? Can <laughs> yes, you indeed. share how, uh, one of the other nice things that theater has provided you? Anyway? Yeah. I met my wife, Jennifer, in, in that show and, uh, she was, she was a replacement. And, uh, so I had done maybe four or five months already. And, um, the, the, the story goes is that, that June is busting out all over. Yeah. It was the big dance yeah, number yeah, where yeah. all the, all the young folks in, in, yeah. in, in Maine get together and are horny and <laughs> dance, right. uh, you know, displaying that. Um, anyway, so, so 
poor Jennifer, who is a trained dancer, is is tasked with having to dance with me, and I, I I'm I'm more of a feel guy when it comes <laughs> to dancing, not really a numbers guy. Right. And so, you know, she was wanting to know by the numbers, like, where are we on six? And I'm like, I don't know. Once I pass the bush over there, I take a left and I go behind the house. And, you know, so she's like, oh, my God, I got to I got to I'm like, it's dancing with evil Knievel here. So um, anyway, that was an auspicious beginning. But, yeah, that was the best takeaway. That's awesome. Um, If there I guess what must have felt like the biggest thing up to that point would have been professionally would have been titanic which we should just remind people i guess this is maury Eston pre-movie titanic right. right uh on broadway big you know anticipation for this and you're playing the stoker this guy who's got a girl to marry back home he's uh ultimately gives up the seat on the lifeboat i mean this was a people were very moved i went back and read the reviews and they had mixed things to say about the show but everybody was pretty impressed by this young actor who's in that part and i just wonder um and in the end i, I you know it seems like people came around one best musical at the tony's a lot of stuff um but did you feel like that put you on the map in a way that was to a greater degree than before uh perhaps i mean it, it certainly gave me a sense of accomplishment and kind of being given a responsibility in a big show and uh you know that was that was an incredible ensemble of actors i mean everybody in that show was was so experienced and talented and you know beyond the norm um and a lot a lot of incredible actors um, I'm thinking of Alan Corduner, mm-hmm. Victoria Clark, Bill Buell, David Costable, you know, it, the list goes on and on. So, um, for, I felt, um, good about having kind of held up my, my part and just kind of, uh, felt really confident. I also had incredible material. I had a killer song to sing in the first act, um, and, uh, w- which was well suited to my voice and, um, and you know that show was was a, a great lesson in what it takes to kind of continually work on a show during a preview process to figure out what the right mechanics are and and what's going to ultimately deliver it and make the audience feel um, feel like they're in it and yeah. they they're 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 loving it and so that was a lot of work and it was. It was eye-opening because you know a lot of the a lot of the things shifted in the material. People's material got cut, um, but there was always a great sense of belief in the show itself, um, despite you know some of those disappointments. And you know I didn't sign up for for not having this or that. And you know all of a sudden you're like, okay, well this is you know in for a penny and for a pound. So there was a great sense of I think camaraderie in that, in that way. Um, and I'm still friends with 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 you know, with all of them really yeah, to one Victoria degree or another. Clark are both going to the yeah. Tony's this yeah, year. How about so, that? Yeah. Um, another uh, milestone I think we have to say would be 2002 Broadway production, Sweet Smell of Success. You're Sydney, the part Tony Curtis played in the film. John Lithgow's the Burt Lancaster, Walter Winchell type part. And I wonder... The other thing we have to note is this is 21 years ago, and one of your co-stars was Kelly O'Hara, who you're now acting with eight times a week in uh, your newest production, and so which we're going to come to. But I guess I just wonder, you know, what stands out to you about that one? Because 
uh, among other things, resulted in your first of your now four Tony nominations. Yeah, that that was um, that was very significant. Um, it, it, again, in the kind of evolution of of my um, awareness or confidence, or or um, just having another chance to feel um, like I like I was I was doing my job well, and and and. I, I credit a lot of this to to John Lithgow. So when you're when you're kind of going you know toe to toe with a legend like that, um, it, it can be very at first it can be very uh, can bring up a lot of questions about <laughs> can I do this? You know, <laughs> is this the right combination of people? And should I be here? All the things, all the little voices in your head. Um, John is an amazing person and uh, remains a great friend to this day. And from the very beginning was always, you know, wide open arms and, you know, how can we do this together? And I always felt immediately that, that this was going to be a partnership. It wasn't going to be some kind of, you know, you know, I'm going to do my thing and you young man are going to learn from me. It was just a true partnership mm-hmm. and it was the biggest gift, the biggest gift I could have ever received because I, I so admired him. I'm, why wouldn't you? Sure. Um, but it was an immediate sense of um, of of symbiosis between us. So that was that was a huge um, a huge gift. Um, and yeah, and Kelly and I, uh, you know, twenty one years ago, that was a big deal. I don't want to speak for her, but it was a big deal for both of us, I think. Um, and we've talked about this many times mm-hmm. during our rehearsal process now for Days of Wine and Roses. But you know, um, it was a an amazing show, you know, a great Marvin Hamlish score. John Guare wrote the book, Christopher Wheeldon, choreographer, Nicholas Heitner, director. I mean, the pedigree was, amazing, was yeah. just stunning. Um, so, you know, it was a, another great lesson in thinking, okay, this is it. It's going to be the thing. Yeah. It's going to go forever. And, <laughs> and then no, yeah. it, it didn't. So, so, uh, you know, lesson learned that, that you just never know. You no. just never know. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I think you've now done 15 productions on Broadway, so I'm not going to make you talk at length about each of them, but I'll just know in passing as we go through these after a few years after that, 2005, your replacement in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, then both off-Broadway and then on-Broadway in 2006, Lieutenant of Inishmore, which Martin McDonough, uh, early days. I just, uh, because you've worked with some of these uh, between Martin and then later in film with Aaron Sorkin and some of these guys who are great writers, but very specific in the way they write and expect the actors to deliver their dialogue. I just have to ask about that 
you know, early encounter with McDonough there on that one. I was in awe of yeah. him. I, I just the 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 chemistry of his words, the particular you know you know choices of words and and how they're laid out. I I just I was in awe of of his brain and his humor. His I just I just love his writing, and I I have this very very significant or specific memory. There was a line that I had that that I for I was trying to get the way that he wanted, and he never gave me a line reading. But I remember the line. It was you know I played one of the one of the uh, IRA guys to kind of come back and to kind of intimidate Porik into getting into line, right. and um, I I have this line where I have to say in a mood. You know, like as if I'm commenting on, you know, how petulant mm-hmm. he's being. And in my Northern Irish accent, I'm saying in a mood. And and it's for some reason, Martin was like, no, no, when you say it, it's like, it's, you know, he, he tries seven ways to Sunday to get me to get to say those three words the way that he wanted them. I mean, it was beautiful and loving. It was never anything other than, right. like, I never felt like I was disappointing him. I just wanted to please him. Right. Like, oh, how do I do this? How do I say these three words? But, um, you know, when you're working with people like that, you want to honor the 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 kind of the beauty of the architecture that they've created, and um, that that experience was was a fantastic one. So after that, I think later that same year, even uh, the Apple Tree on Broadway. Fast forwarding, obviously f- through a few things, and now I have to ask you about around the turn of the century. I think becomes this movement towards adapting animated children's targeted films on Broadway obviously did very well with uh, a number of things, Lion King, others, others, but now Jeffrey Katzenberg and DreamWorks decide they're going to do this with Shrek. And now it becomes this manhunt to find somebody who can play the ogre. How did they arrive at Brian Darcy James? I don't know. That's a question (laughs) for them, but uh, I'll tell you three things that made it clear that that seemed really interesting and intriguing to me. It was Janine Tesori, David Lindsay Bear, and Jason Moore, the director. Uh, Jason and I went to college together, so I knew Jason, and I thought it was really exciting that he was getting this opportunity. He had done things prior to that as well, and he was definitely on his feet and in his own, on his own path for sure. Um, but Janine, I'd worked with in, um, I did a production of hers, of Violet in the workshop phase. Um, so I knew her work and I knew her music and I knew who, who she was and her incredible spirit. Um, David Lindsay Bear's writing I was familiar with, um, and just, I, I, I marvel at his kind of, his absurd wit and his, his, um, his heart. So I thought, well, this is a really this is an unexpected kind of alchemy of people to, to create Shrek the musical. So, um, but that for me was, was, and also, you know, the, the, the challenge of like, okay, well, how, 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 how do you do this? How do you play this part theatrically, you know? Um, so, so all of those things were very alluring and very, um, interesting and daunting in, in a great kind of exciting way. So, as to how they came to decide, you know, I would be the person to do that. I don't know, yeah. but uh, but it was a, it was a, an incredible experience. And did you ever, after getting the part, uh, have second thoughts about it? Only because this transformation, physically, every show. How long are we talking about the the makeup transformation? An hour and a half to get in, uh, almost an hour to get out. So it was it was tough. I mean, the second thoughts were, were, (laughs) they, they, they would usually, you know, hit me around, you know, 
you know, 1130 at night when I'm still in the chair and right. everyone's out of the theater. And um, it was really, really hard. And it, it really took its toll. So the, the job, the, or the show, I should say, mm-hmm. playing the part, being in the show, doing the material was glorious and exciting and, and super fun, as, as you would hope, right? The everything that came with it was really took a momentous um, toll on yeah. me physically, mentally, um, fatigue-wise. I mean, my poor daughter was six at the time, and you know her image of me was just kind of being this person locked in his dressing room, you know, who in between shows couldn't get out of my green makeup because it wouldn't be there wouldn't be enough time to yeah. get out and then get back in. I would just be in the chair for the whole day. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't just makeup. It was just, it was, it was prosthetic, yeah. <laughs> big foam head. Oh so, um, she, after a while she'd be like, I don't want to go see daddy <laughs> in the, in the dark room. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, the next show that I've got to ask you about would be dark in a very different way, but, um, very well received and powerful. And that is next to normal where again, you're there off Broadway and then come in, I think once it's been up and running for a bit on Broadway as the husband of someone battling mental illness. It's a considered, you know, a landmark show, won the Pulitzer, all of that. And I think maybe most significantly in a way, long-term, it was the beginning of you and these uh, guys who made the the music. Can you tell right. us about them? Well, interestingly, I mean, we're talking about Shrek and Next to Normal back to back, I mean, it's just for the nitty gritty kind of, you know, uh, business machinations here. Um, Shrek came up the opportunity to do it. Um, and, and people have asked me about this, but I, you know, I don't really have opportunity to kind of talk about these kinds of things because it's kind of inside baseball, but what time, time? um, next to normal was that second stage. And we just were nearing the end of our off Broadway run. And at that point, it wasn't certain what was going to happen with the show. There was a possibility of it going to DC. There was a possibility of it going to Pasadena, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, David Stone, our producer, was weighing his options and trying to figure out, you know, and possibly maybe move it to New York. Um, and I think that option was maybe taking a little bit of a backseat to some more development on it. Um, and so it was kind of in this this you know, we don't know what's going to happen yet. I think everyone felt confident that, that there was going to be a next stage, but you know, you just never know. You never yeah. know. Right. So, um, at that point I got this, this offer to do Shrek, mm-hmm. a big Broadway musical and Shrek the musical. And a lot of people said, how could you have decided to play an ogre in a kid's musical? You know, that's the, right, right. their, their right. words. Um, and not, you know, kind of follow through on this complex, incredible, um, groundbreaking material. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that it was, it was a business decision based on, you know, a, a bird in the hand, really. Yeah, right. Um, so, um, and I'm eternally grateful to Michael Greif, the director of Next to Normal, and David Stone, who, um, who after making that decision to, to, to leave and to do this other thing, and of course the show did go to Washington, D.C., and um, and went to Broadway triumphantly. They 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 gave me the opportunity to come back and 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 experience it with Alice right before she left the show, and uh, that was a huge gift. So um, I, I was really lucky in that I, I I was able to kind of um, 
come back and experience it in that in that life uh, on on a Broadway stage. Well, there's sort of an interesting parallel situation a few years later because you were the original King George That's right. third in Hamilton on yeah. at the public when it was even workshop phase, right? That's right. How did that start? And then maybe you can connect. That's why I'm saying yeah. it's a yeah. sort of similar. It situation. is. It is yeah. similar. I look at it as being similar for sure. Um, the circumstances were a little bit different in that uh, I had been developing both. I'd been part of, I, 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 I was doing my job to help develop it. Um, the geniuses behind both shows were doing the development. <laughs> um, anyway, I had done workshops of Hamilton. I had done workshops of Something Rotten, which I adored. Yes. Uh, I adored them both. Um, Hamilton was going to have an off-Broadway run at the Public Theater. Um, and then as all these opportunities are, it's kind of, we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see if it's it's received well. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was received pretty well. Can uh, I just pause for one sure. second? Sure. So the fact that you even were part of the workshopping and public, did you know Lin-Manuel before that? Like where did, how did, how did that even first come into place? I had met Lynn at, at like industry functions and was, you know, a fan of In the Heights yes. and, um, you know, would say hello. And, and Lynn is such a, um, prodigious theater goer and he is, he is so, he's just everywhere at once. And it, because he loves being, you know, in the theater and seeing it and supporting and, and he had come to see, I remember meeting him and talking to him after Next to Normal on Broadway. And, you know, I just got to know him that way. And he was familiar with my work. And so he asked me to be a part of this, this very, very early stage reading, which was just the first act where I think maybe there were six or seven actors. Wow. And it was called Hamilton Mixtape at the time. And so that was the first, for me, mm-hmm. I think there had been other iterations. Um, but for me, that was my first introduction to the, the King's song. Um, and getting a glimpse of like how that was going to fit in with all these other really fascinating shows. I mean, this is a whole other tangent that we could spend two hours on, but that's how Lynn and I got to know was by virtue of his, um, his kind of generous spirit and his kind of, uh, extending himself and saying, hi, I'm Lynn, you know, you know, I, I've seen your work and just a, just a great, great guy as everybody knows. Yeah. Um, so I'm here just to kind of just corroborate. That. Right. Um, so at the same time, there's this other show that is kind of in development um, and has had a couple different iterations with different casts. And um, I get inserted into the process and start kind of understanding, oh, this is a classic screwball musical comedy where I get to be a goofball and the material is incredible. All these roles are just so beautifully and uh, just, just really well, well defined and at that point, something rotten was going to go out of town. And I was going to ultimately have to face a, face a decision one way or the, the other based on the what-if scenario of what was going to happen to Hamilton if it were to move. Um, I think my thinking was at that time, I would, I would just kind of see, you know, if I was in the Broadway production of Hamilton, then it would maybe, it would not allow me to go and do the out-of-town um, production of something rotten. Well, lo and behold, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sure there's a million reasons, but um, the producers of that show decided to uh, forego the out of town and they had a theater to do it. And so all of a sudden something rotten was an opportunity that was right in front of me. And um, I was just just about to start rehearsals for uh, Hamilton off Broadway at the public. And so that was when the the Sophie's Choice came up and and um, 
what I decided to do was to uh, to just let everybody know on the Hamilton side that this thing had come up. Um, it was unexpectedly timed, uh, pushed up and on the calendar, and that my intention was to uh, to do it, which would ultimately be a conflict with the end of the public run. And my entreaty to them was, I want to do this as well, but I understand if this completely screws you up, please, you know, um, uh, I want to be there for it if I can. Um, and I talked to Oscar Eustace, who was said, said, okay, well, let me take it to the gang and, and um, we'll get back to you. And thank God, you know, they said, okay, yeah, we, you can be here. It wasn't ideal for them. I know it wasn't for, for them to lose a cast member. And at that point, everyone had a high hopes for the show. Nobody knew what it was going to be. This, like, this incredibly uh, groundbreaking. I mean, I, I've used that word before in this podcast already, but I think that's capital G, totally. capital B with, with, uh, with Hamilton. Um, but at, at any rate, um, I, I, people ask me, do you have, do you have regrets? And I say, no, because I was able to do both things. I, right. I was able to experience that incredible, um, that, that incredible, f those first few steps of that show out of the gate. Um, and then come back to it after and something. And come back, kind of like yeah. next to normal right. as well. Again, grateful to Jeffrey Seller to, to allow for that. And it's not like something rotten wasn't special in the end also. I no, mean, it was that completely, was, it was a, a, a gas. Right. I had that, that time in my life. Right. It was a, um, a great show. It was, um, it asked a lot of me. It was challenging. It was fun. It was, uh, should we just tell our listeners, this is, you're playing Nick Bottom, who's one of a pair of brothers of, who are playwrights in the, during the Renaissance, who are pissed that this guy Shakespeare is dominating, and then they come up with a musical. That's right. So, yeah. and it was, and, and Tony nomination in the end for you, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, the one thing I'll just add into that to make it just yeah, more please. ridiculous is that I get the idea to do a musical from Nostradamus's, you know, <laughs> half wit cousin who who sees the next thing that Ham that uh, that Shakespeare is going to do and conflates Hamlet with omelet. So Nick <laughs> right. Bottom's great contribution to uh, creating musical theater was writing a musical called. Come Omelet, yeah. Oh my god! I mean, I was so. I loved that it. Well, so and then after the run of that, which was Casey, Nicola, and and a whole group of you guys who are terrific. You, uh, as we say, came back to Hamilton. So you got got a little of of both worlds. And I guess what I would bring up next is that around the same time, I maybe this was even in motion before the before the season of Something Rotten, but so Something Rotten, I think 2015, mm -hmm. that's the same year that you're in Spotlight, yeah. your highest profile film yeah. or any screen acting up to that point. Just to remind folks, you're one of the quartet of Boston Globe investigative reporters who are looking into reports of sex abuse in the Catholic Church. This is Tom McCarthy directing you, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, and Mark Ruffalo. It seems like you just reading things that you've said over the years, you know, you had done screen acting there. We I've glossed over smash was in 2012 into 13. I think the, the, which certainly, I think that was your first big series, yep. but this is like next level. How did it come about? And when chronologically was this during something rotten? Um, well, it came about the old-fashioned way of getting an audition uh, through your agent yeah. and, and uh, 
going to Barden and Schnee casting and, and, and just kind of waiting outside and having your paper and, and uh, going over your lines and seeing all the people in front of you go in as well for the same part and just thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm going to give it my best shot. And um, yeah, and just 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 auditioning. <laughs> and, you know, that that I'll say it again, you know, Tom McCarthy's going to get tired of this, but I will say he, he changed my life for sure. I mean, he gave me um, the most incredible um, opportunity and the the faith that he had in me, he was he was sailing against the wind to cast me. Um, you know, I think it's safe to say. Um, you know, you have it's kind of like you've got Keaton, you've got McAdams, you've got Ruffalo, you've got you know, the list goes on, and then all of a sudden you've got who who's who's that? Well, anyone in the theater world knew, but well, yeah. maybe not. No, in no, LA no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, Thank you, Tom, for for believing that I can hold my own there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think about the timeline. I do remember that. Um, again, you know, it, it posed a problem for for the show, something rotten, in that there was some requirements that that um, that I had to go do, like attending the Oscars yeah. and, and uh, uh, um, <laughs> doing a lot of promotion for right. the film, and and uh, I missed some shows from for something rotten, which I don't like to do. Um, and uh, I was I was lucky to have you know uh, a producer in Kevin McCollum who was who was uh, generous to kind of allow that to happen because it's it's not helpful you know it's not helpful to the cast um, uh, it's not ideal to be to be sure so um, but I do remember there was definitely a dovetail of that show and all of the things that happened um, you know in terms of the the film coming out right and we'll note best ensemble SAG award winner. Best Picture Oscar winner. I mean, this was a, a rare, you know, received to a, in a rare way, just yeah. totally embraced. And I wonder, did you find that because you're, you know, part of this thing that has taken off and everybody was watching in the business for sure, um, was there a, a pretty quick effect in terms of the screen acting opportunities that were now coming your way? Um, I wouldn't say it was immediate, but I I, I do feel like it, it definitely um, uh, lowered the 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 hurdle to jump in terms of convincing perhaps casting directors or producers that that you know this guy from the theater could could actually be on film because there was something a handle they could hold and say oh yeah the the guy with the mustache from Spotlight <laughs> and he didn't ruin the movie you know so so that was that was helpful for sure and right. it did it did change uh, it did change a little bit in terms of getting chances to be seen for things that perhaps I wouldn't be seen for be it prior to that and I guess to that end can I just mention a few and if you have a comment or two about sure. it um pretty soon after that i think maybe a year or two later you were in 13 reasons why on netflix first two seasons this is you again with kit and yorkie from next normal right anything i mean that show had everybody talking well it did and and you know brian yorkie and i did next to normal together tom mccarthy directed the the, the pilot of 13 reasons oh, why I and was the executive producer that. of that wow. as well so the combination of tom and brian i think there was some confidence in me mm -hmm. uh and being able to pull that role off so that was hugely helpful in terms of just time spent in the business and having working relationships with people and um, Brian, I, I absolutely adore, uh, and, and, you know, he, he was always super supportive of, of my time 
in next to normal. And again, you know, going back to that thing where you know anybody who's creating a show and you lose a member of the the jigsaw puzzle, it's it's not it's not a great feeling, I'm sure. Um, but such as it is, he he um, he never held that against me, and and I'm really grateful for that because you know he he's he's a brilliant writer, a brilliant mind. And a very um, a huge heart, and um, I think that that shows in his work on totally. Thirteen Reasons Why. So, um, I think the confluence of Tom and Brian in that in that space was was uh, definitely a, a plus. Also, twenty seventeen, Bradley Bad Brad Ruderman. <laughs> this is where I was mentioning Sorkin earlier. This is Molly's Game, his directorial debut. And again, I guess maybe it's worth dissecting in the way you did with uh, McDonough. I mean. Sorkin dialogue is not like anyone else's, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And that that came about with just uh, you know, I auditioned at my agency, put myself on tape and uh and and you know, did what what the scene, you know, asked me to do and uh um I I of course was familiar and um in awe of Aaron Sorkin and his writing, you know, from West Wing and and other things, mostly West Wing in my experience, yeah. my appetite for him. Um yeah, that was, um, I think when you're in the theater, you, 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 uh, this is a generalization, but I think there is a, you're conditioned, you learn that the, the playwright is, is king you know, or queen. So it's, you, you, you want to honor the, 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 the writing because it's not just a random assortment of words and, and not just t- talking about dialogue. We're talking about structure. We're mm-hmm. talking about everything. You're writing a play, writing a musical is really hard. And when someone can do it um, exquisitely, you 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 learn pretty quickly that oh, that's the person that is making this life possible. So, um, I have a great respect for uh, for Aaron and any and all writers um, who um, particularly and especially who come from the theater, because that's where that's where my background yeah. is. So to to be able to work with Aaron and and to to say his words and to want to get them right and to understand, try to understand his thinking about rhythm about intention, all of these things that are, 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 you know, kind of coming together in a confluence of, of, of craft and intention. I mean, that is, it's something to really, um, respect and, um, uh, and try to honor. And I'll just note that this Tony's is going to be like an episode of this is your life because Chastain's also going to be there this year. Right. The, so it's like, I, right. I think there's fewer nominees who you haven't worked with that are going <laughs> to be there. But, um, the next year, First Man, Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land, your uh, pilot, yeah. Joseph Walker. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, this is a, people forget how young Chazelle yeah. was and is still. I mean, when he's doing these massive movies, any any takeaway from that one? I just really wanted to be in that movie because I thought that the subject matter was fascinating. I'm no NASA nerd, you know, I, I'm not like, I don't know everything about the space culture, space the space programs, but... Um, I, I am intrigued by it, and I thought, oh, this is a fascinating story, and the script was was really incredible, and um, and I had just seen La La Land, and um, you know, I was blown away by it, and I thought, oh, this is such a cool turn, you know, this is not the expected follow up, um, so I, I I kind of moved heaven and earth to try to convince them that I should be a part of it, and uh, thankfully that that happened. So yeah, it was a it was a nice little part, and um, what I really enjoyed about being in the mix and being, you know, directed by Damien is that he, he, you know, in the little time that I spent with him, um, he's very, he's a warm person. He's very inviting, but he's, but he's, he, and he, he, he works like, like he's, it's, it's, um, 
It's like Mercury. It just it is constantly. He's constantly moving and constantly asking, you know, for for different variations, whether it's from his DP, um, or for from his actors or from his production crew. You know, it's that was a very light um, on its feet crew, and I was really struck by that. Mm-hmm. And, and it starts with him, I'm sure, mm-hmm. in terms of what how he works and how he wants to work, at least in my experience sure. during that movie. That was one thing I remember. Continuing this run of, of post-Spotlight films, you are, it must be kind of a pinch-me thing to be in a, another movie version of West Side Story with, for Steven Spielberg. Is that, does, has that sunk in yet? No, no. <laughs> Officer Krupke. No, I mean, I will say though, and this, this may sound like I'm tooting a horn, but I walked in for the rehearsal for West Side Story and they did, they did copious amounts of rehearsing. Um, um, and Stephen was there and we were being reintroduced and he goes, so this is the fourth time we've worked together. And I said, four, four, I'm thinking four. <laughs> like I knew three. He, he was the executive producer of First Man, the yes. Damien Chazelle movie that we just talked about. Um, Shrek, of course, he was, you know, a part Dream of that from its, yeah. from its, in its DNA. Um, and Smash. Um, and so he was counting West Side as the fourth awesome. time. So uh, that really struck me, you know, as being like, wow, uh, that's incredible that, that he just said that and that he's <laughs> saying it to me. But then to actually work with him and to be to be in conversation with him on a set and to get direction from him and to, it, it really is a pinch me moment because you, you know, you spend your time, if you're a fan of movies, you spend your time wondering, oh, what'd that be like? You know, well, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if that would ever happen. And, you know, there's this str- strange combination of things when it does, where you think, again, going back to the Blood Brothers thing, it's like, oh, yeah, this is just people doing their job, in his case, extraordinarily right, right. well, obviously. But it doesn't discount the fact you got to show up every day. You have to have a plan. You have to have an excitement. You have to have a genuine understanding of what you want to do. And that's essentially it. Um, obviously, there are different levels of talent involved. But um, uh, that, that was striking to me to realize, oh, and he makes it very clear and very, um, which I just love about him, it's everybody. It's everybody's doing this. And he's such an incredible leader in the sense that he makes sure that everyone knows. Well, I think I read you once talked about the fact, like, when it's your whoever's first day of shooting, <laughs> yes. what happens? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when, when I did my first shot, I was in uh, the precinct and I was basically sitting in my seat, which was way in the background. And, uh, you know, so we're rolling the thing and there's not much pressure because I know that I'm, I'm just kind of there to be atmosphere essentially. <laughs> and, uh, there's something happening in the foreground that is much more important. And, uh, it's not a long scene. He cuts and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that's Brian's first scene in the movie. <laughs> and then he goes, you're about this big. <laughs> and he puts his fingers together like an, an inch, inch, a tall version of myself, right. but you're in there. So, so, uh, no, he's, uh, he's an, an incredibly, um, uh, uh, generous and effective uh, captain of the ship. The last film that I'm going to mention is unlike, you know, something like West Side Story is massive, right? Then there's a, t- sometimes these tiny gems, which thankfully there are things like the Spirit Awards to highlight that they exist and direct people to go check them out. But in your case, this was last year, and you were nominated for a Spirit Award for The Cathedral. Can yeah. you, let's say somebody's listening who has no idea, this is not a movie that got that kind of promotion that some of these others do, but really great work by you. What's What would you, what stands out to you about that one? 
Well, The Cathedral is a film that was written and directed by a very talented young, um, dare I say it, auteur, Ricky D'Ambrose. And um, it's the rise and fall of a family in the 80s. It's essentially a coming-of-age story of a, a young boy into a young man um, in the context of his family that um, has all kinds of issues and, and challenges, like all families do. But you see it through in a very distinct and unique way. You see it through the eyes of this kid growing up and how he relates to the world and how his family informs his evolution. So um, it's a very quiet, it's a very interesting, it's a very um, stylized piece. I remember reading it thinking, I, I, I have no idea what this, what this is, and, but, but being very intrigued by it because it was so singular in, in its construction. So um, it also came at a time when it was in the heart of the pandemic and, and things were just starting to open up and it was an opportunity to work and I was so ravenous to to not only work but also you know as we all had been doing during that time just reevaluating what it is that what, what was important to us you know why do we do what we do um what kinds of things w would we like to do that would would feel like they were uh, meaningful and not just doing them to do them and this really ticked that box because it was it was going to be an artistic venture and, and that was uh, your first thing after my the, first thing yeah what had just because you know we know how affected the theater community was by the pandemic. What, obviously, you know, you are at the top of the theater profession and you've done screen acting as well, but I'm imagining that it doesn't make it any more fun for you when there's not a lot of work uh, at during those years. What were, or, you know, whatever, I guess year, year and a half, two years that when we were really in lockdown and there wasn't much going on here around Broadway, what was, what was that time like for you? It was scary. It was, um, it was, you know, it was like just, uh, the wind whistling through the, the, the cactus of the desert and it was really bizarre and scary. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, we have a little place about an hour away, which was always intended to be like a little weekend getaway, which quickly became our all time, you know, location to live. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when we would come back into the city, it was always so striking and it was just, oh, just desolate and bizarre. Um, uh, but industry-wise, it was, um, I, I, you know, when I think about it now, what I, I'm always amazed by, you know, and, and really this it shouldn't surprise me because I think the theater community is unique in the sense that, that there is a, there is a, a spirit there. There is a, um, a, a communal, a real communal um, um, understanding of what it means to kind of prop each other up. There were so many efforts within the theater community to kind of find ways to generate income and to generate, um, to, to kind of keep the bottom from bottoming out, um, whether it was costume design, people kind of finding ways to make masks or um, you know, just efforts by individuals to lift spirits and to let people know that they were going to be okay. Brian Stokes Mitchell singing, you know, Dream the Impossible Dream out of his apartment window. I mean, I get teary-eyed thinking uh -huh. about it. Just people finding ways to to connect and to to uplift and to to try to give people a sense of like, okay, this is we're gonna get through this somehow. We don't know how, but um, I don't know. I think that, that I when I think about that time and I think about this community, that's those are the things that I think about is that kind of um, the grit and right. the uh, the the spirit of of kind of relentless optimism. Well, one of the last things I think you were involved with before the world stopped was um, 
stepping into the ferryman, which had right. won the best play Tony. Uh, you're succeeding, I guess, Patty Considine at that mm -hmm. point. So you were on stage shortly before it stopped and then, you know, lest anyone think that you've abandoned the stage for all these now, uh, you know, exciting screen roles, but you've, oh, you've continued to uh, do both. And, and I think this is a good opportunity to talk about as we, you know, wind towards the end here, these, this past year or so where the Baker and Into the Woods, a part that I think I had read, you first played like a quarter century ago in That's Minneapolis true. or something. That's like, exactly this is right. a part that you go way back with. Now you're a Tony nominee for that. So definitely want to talk about that and also shared in the Grammy for the yeah. uh, musical theater album, which is congratulations. Thank Pretty you. Cool. And then we'll uh, close, if it's all right, with Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, but let's please. talk about that first. Yeah, well, uh, Into the Woods, I mean, talk about things plopping into your lap out of the blue. Uh, I was familiar with the fact that the, that City Center was doing a concert version of it um, and thought, oh, that's great, wonderful, and knew a handful of people that were in it. Um, and then I got a call from Lear de Bessonet, the director, saying, hey, um, we need to uh, cast the baker for a Broadway run. Would you be willing to entertain that idea? And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Is this the same production? I, you know, it took a second yeah. to understand what was happening, but um, very quickly it became clear that, that, um, that, you know, yeah, the answer was yes. And it was a six week commitment. So not bad. Of course, you know, let's, yeah. let's, this, this be great. And that turned into something else entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, and for the cast that had come from the city center experience, they, they were all saying, oh, well, just wait. I mean, people are really um, excited about seeing this particular show. And, um, and not to take anything away from this assembly of incredible actors, I think that had a lot to do with it as well. But I think there was such a huge appetite for honoring uh, Stephen Sondheim, who had passed recently. And um, the, the, the nature of the show, people love the show. It's been around for a while, since 85, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that combination of things, and also coming out of the pandemic and people wanting to get to the theater and having a reason to cheer and to be moved and to... to support, you know, what we do. Um, it was this incredible rocket ship of, of feelings and, and fun and, um, you know, a lot of work for sure, but, but, uh, the best kind of, it just kind of was just zesty the whole way through because it was, it was always being received with such love and such, um, excitement. I, I've never really experienced anything like it. And, you know, you mentioned that I, didn't, I had done the, the role 20 years ago, and that, that's, a, that's a conversation unto itself because I've come a long way in my understanding and appreciation for Sondheim's work. I, I've said it to people before, you know, I, I'm a three-chord guy. I'm a pretty, um, you know, pretty rudimentary um, pop song. That's the extent of my musical kind of palette, you know. Uh, I'm exaggerating only a little, but... <laughs> I've always felt like, oh God, I don't know. I just don't understand Sondheim. I, I've, I, I've, I had a hard time for a long time kind of, you know, figuring out like, how do I get into that? I, I, and um, it's taken me a while, you know, and that production of Into the Woods was an education in terms of a, the beginning of the education of like, oh, oh, there's something really deep going on here in terms of, again, going back to construction and the writing and the written, the written word. 
and then to do it again with the knowledge of my own life and having a child and and being a father and l- losing a father and having all this information that coexists with that particular character in the way that Sondheim has constructed it, I I fully appreciate the genius and and in awe of 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 how he put the, puts things together. David Patrick Kelly, um, who plays the mysterious man and the narrator in in the production that I was in, um, he calls it the algebra of emotion, mm. and um, that's what Sondheim does. He does all the math for you. And it's, it, it took me a long time and will continue to take me a long time if I ever had a chance to do any other Sondheim piece to understand that um, you don't have to do much. You just have to say the words and be connected to them. Um, but you don't want to gild the lily too much because all the math has been worked out already. And just just say the thing that has been constructed and it will be effective with the combination of the music and the words. Amazing. Well, so you go from that musical, which has really become widely seen and appreciated over the, like you said, whatever 35 or so years that it's been around to a new musical about uh, adaptation of days of wine and roses, which 1962 film, Jack Lemmon, Lee Remick, uh, I think Blake, was it Blake Edwards? Blake Edwards directed. Yeah. And about alcoholism and two people who are, uh, you know, find each other and are both alcoholics. And I, I had the treat of seeing it last night you're wonderful as always. You're opposite Kelly, who I think is, I said to you earlier, the as good as it gets. Uh, I'm not not a unique opinion, but of the musical theater actresses of today, true, just the most beautiful voice, Adam Gettle. Like, there's a lot of uh, great pieces here, and I just I wonder because we've talked about a number of examples, going including Lieutenant Vinishmore, which was also originating at the same theater where you guys are now, you were saying Linda Gross Theater, Atlantic Theater Company, but just how did this begin? And is this going to continue to, do you see this as another one where maybe you guys grow with it onto Broadway or something? Perhaps, else? perhaps. Yeah. yeah there's always an, the yeah. unknown. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I, you know, it would be great if that happened, but um, we're in previews right now. So That's a little early to yeah, say, it's like, yeah. Yeah. As they say, day by day, <laughs> right? right? Um, <laughs> But there's a couple of things. You asked how it came to be. And I I, want to make sure that this is true. So I'm going to just put a little caveat saying, I think this is true. Kelly O'Hara is really responsible for this idea. I think she she brought the idea to Adam a long time ago. And we've been working on it. And and she invited me. She said, I want, I think you should play the Jack Lemmon role and I should play the Lee Remick part. And I think Adam Gettle should write the score. And and I thought, well, yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, that's a crazy idea and it's an amazing idea. When you say crazy idea though, I just want to interject because before seeing it, I'm sitting there thinking, how do you make a musical about alcoholism? Right. But you got, let me, you got, was that something that you had to see to believe as well? Well, knowing the movie and revisiting the movie, that was a question I thought, well, this is a, it's a harrowing topic. It's It's a harrowing story of a, of a, of a harrowing topic. And, but I think the key here is, is, you know, like all great shows and great novels and great stories, it's a love story. It is two people wanting to connect. And uh, in this case, both having debilitating diseases that really um, um, proves problematic, to say the least. So um, that is inherent drama right there. 
but hopefully what is overriding about this and what people are going to respond to in a way that makes them feel engaged and uplifted is the spirit of wanting to connect and wanting to achieve love and feeling worthy of love and 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 being knocked down and having doubts about your self-worth and your self your the value and your esteem and to um to work to work and to try to get better. I mean, everybody likes that story. Everybody wants an underdog to succeed. And um, so hopefully the, the, this beautiful relationship that Adam and Craig Lucas, our, our writer, um, and Michael Greif, our director, um, have been able to concoct is, is a, an, an assemblage of all those ideas. And let me just reiterate what you were saying about Kelly. I stand in awe of her talent and I, I'm, you know, two feet away from her right. the whole show. And it just, it, it, it truly, I mean, I know this sounds like, um, you know, like Hollywood BS, but, but it, I, you know, she's, she's an exquisite talent and, uh, she's an incredible actor. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's what people are going to be really surprised by is the depths that, and the, and the, and the things that perhaps you haven't seen in Kelly's work before as an actor, but also, you know, look, you just have to say it. Her voice is just something other and it's glorious. And in, in communion with Adam Gettle's writing, which I think is genius and his mind and his attack and his way in and his view of things that comes out of his heart and his fingers and onto uh, a piano and into a score. I don't know. I've never experienced anything like this show in terms of putting something together and seeing the pieces and molding the clay. And I, I don't know, it's the way that the story is told, um, uh, the nature of the story, it's all very <laughs> unique. And um, I find it incredibly fulfilling and incredibly challenging and draining. Um, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, you hope to get. Well, I wonder, and this may seem like a very trivial follow-up question, but I am curious. I've talked to enough actors who have had, who have, played alcoholics to, to wonder, you know, you've heard so many different approaches to it. People say it's very hard to portray being drunk without being drunk. Right. Maybe even, even if some people have tried to drink to be convincing as, as, uh, on, you know, stage or screen, but I guess, is it, is there some method to doing it where it's not just some ridiculous uh, character where, you know, you, you guys, we buy it watching it. Well, thank you yeah. for saying that. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, I, look, it, it, you got to have a great director mm -hmm. who can say, um, that's ridiculous <laughs> what you're doing. Um, you know, and, and yes, that is a huge concern. What also makes it challenging and interesting is that it is, it ultimately it is a theatrical piece. So, you are delivering music, you're having to sing a score, and sometimes in my case, in both of our cases, mm -hmm. in high, high, high levels of yeah. intoxication. So what does that look like? And can you suspend the disbelief of, can you put aside the, uh, you know, the demonstration of being drunk um, to be able to deliver a musical moment? And will those two things coexist? Will the audience still believe that you're drunk or you're under the influence? How are all those things going to uh, mm -hmm. play? I mean, that is a huge uh, balancing act, which frankly, I'm still figuring out and tr trying to f figure out where I can, you know, push the pedal on the gas and where I, I shouldn't do anything at all because 
oftentimes the story is the thing that's going to deliver the information rather than trying to, you know, do your best Foster Brooks or something, you know, <laughs> which I won't right. lie. I have. W.C. Fields. I have definitely <laughs> kind of looked at those, those Foster Brooks videos. Right, right. Right. He's a genius. Anyway, um, but there's, there's, you bring up a really interesting and, and important question of, it is a combination of naturalism, I think, that we're doing, that the play is requiring of us and asking of us. Um, but also there's this heightened uh, theatricality that you have to deliver as well by virtue of the music. So um, that's what also makes it a bit of a tight, tight wire yeah. uh, walk. So I, I'm, I'm appreciative that you didn't, you didn't. No, it's you, very, yeah. I, I'm excited to, I, I, I'm amazed you guys are only fairly still early. You said in previews, we're, right? We're, we're, I think seven performances in. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it's, it's, that's amazing. Um, well, so just finally, you know, I know there's a lot more going on than I've even been able to bring up. People uh, will see you in the final episodes of Love and Death, the HBO limited series, which people are very into, and on and on and on. But just, um, you know, I you're, you're so busy acting that I don't know if you ever get much of an opportunity to kind of reflect in the way that I've been lucky enough to do with you here over the last hour. Is there anything, you know, when you look back over the fact 30 years on Broadway, all the, you know, a Best Picture Oscar winner, another nominee, like the people that we're talking about, Sondheim, Spielberg, Sorkin, just can you quite believe where this has all led up to this point? Yeah. And when you put it that way, the answer is no. (laughs) Um, and it is it is wild to to kind of stop and think about it. And I, for better or for worse, I think I'm I have this propensity to not dwell on those things. And I I think it's a, a testament to um, being fortunate to to want to continue to do what I do. So I'm looking forward to kind of learning more, getting better, and getting more opportunities to try to to continue to do what I love to do. I think if you, uh, perhaps, I will speak for myself, but I think, you know, if, if you want to latch on to those things that are defining moments, that can be a bit of a danger because it's gone. It's ephemeral. It happened for sure. And, and I'm so grateful and I can't, can't believe sometimes that it, that I get to work with the people that I've worked with. But, um, I think the trick is to kind of keep moving forward so that you can you can continue to do the thing that has put you in that place for those opportunities to occur otherwise you're just holding on to things that um you know that by virtue of 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 time progressing it's it's a memory and it is definitely a great one but but you know the thing at hand is the moment and um you just got to keep moving forward so loving what i do i think is is a huge part of 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 uh you know, not getting caught in that, that trap of saying, well, look what I have done. <laughs> I'm I special. Well, we now get to do it. Thank you. Thanks to you doing this. So thank you for taking the time. And oh, it's um, absolutely my pleasure. Really I'm a fan it. of this podcast. I really appreciate it. I mean, the time that you take and, and the, and the, the breath that you, um, that you, you, you allow with your guests is really impressive. And I'm, I'm thank you. I feel lucky to be here. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Brad. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.